We come today to Leviticus chapter 18 in our journey through this book, and in light of this passage, we must say from the start that sexuality is a big deal in God's eyes. We see that here in this chapter. We see then that as it is a big deal in God's eyes, it should be a big deal in our eyes. The world routinely criticizes at this point. It criticizes Jesus' followers for making such a big deal of sex. And yet, any honest reading of the Bible will show the significance of this emphasis. It's justified. We also realize the hypocrisy of the world's criticism. The church is supposed to shut up about sex. While the media, the public education system, legislators, litigators, and the marketplace preach on the topic all the time. Preach their message according to their understanding. We realize the world decries the intolerance of Bible-believing churches because God's Word announces a message that our intolerant world refuses to hear. But sex is a big deal to God because it is a stewardship of our bodies that reveals the faithfulness of our hearts. It is a stewardship of our bodies that reveals the faithfulness of our hearts. Sex very clearly distinguishes people who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and those who are determined not to do so. Right belief about sexuality coupled with obedience to God's will in sexual purity are distinguishing characteristics of those who have citizenship in the kingdom of God. Expanding outward, sexual impurity distinguishes not only individuals who reject God's rule, but also nations who do so. When a nation encourages and celebrate sexual liberation, promiscuity, deviance, and oppression, it constitutes a moral cancer in the lifeblood of that nation. And on that score, I think it would be appropriate to say that the United States is terminally ill. In the face of this sobering reality, we're not called by God to despair and we're not called by God to spew bitterness at the darkness with accusations and dire prophecies. God's mercy extends far longer than many Christians want to believe. But rather, we are called to live as salt and light in this sexually decadent culture, refusing to be influenced by our nation's fantasies about what is right and what is wrong. As followers of Jesus Christ, then, we are called to a life of sexual distinctiveness and holiness. We celebrate this, we understand this. We are called to value and celebrate loving sexual activity between a man and a woman who have entered a covenant of marriage, including sexual fidelity to one another for life. This means that we must also celebrate God's designation of all forms of sexual expression outside those parameters as constituting impurity and unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
And this brings us then to Leviticus 18, where we find ancient steerage that directs us to these conclusions in our pursuit of God. There wasn't a unique concept that Christ shared along these lines. He deepened them, he enriched them, he taught us much, but they are connected to what we find in a place such as Leviticus 18, as God describes to his people his holiness. We find then a call to holiness amidst the nations, and we note the emphasis here on the individual as well as the emphasis upon nations, beginning at verse 1 of Leviticus 18, a call to holiness amidst the nations. Through verse 5. Verse 1 And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God is the fundamental consideration of life for God's people. Remember last week, as we came to these chapters 17 through 27, understanding them to be something of a unit, what happens at the tabernacle was not to stay at the tabernacle. God's holiness was to reverberate from the tabernacle. There's all this coming to it in preparation, but then there's this going from it, this reverberation of holiness into every nook and cranny of the Israelite's life. In chapter 18, that is to touch sexual relationships, sexual identity, sexual orientation as it's called, sexual expression play out under the lordship of, of Yahweh, of the Lord. The Lord is commander of every decision that we make. He is the captain of our fate. He is the commander of our soul. Now we obviously run into all sorts of struggles as we strive to live this out. And this area is one in which we struggle. But the genuine believer embraces at least this importance of submitting to God's rule in everyday life. Genuine believers are not lining up and saying, God has nothing to do with this area. I am free to live as I choose. We say rather, as Lord, Christ is to be honored. We are to submit to what he believes about this, and he is the one giving us the directions. Because God is Israel's God, her deliverer from Egyptian bondage, her redeemer and covenant lawgiver, God instructs His people to live distinctive lives. So I am the Lord your God, verse 2, verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. We've seen uh, in working our way through this book, and as we consider Exodus as well, we have seen Egyptian influence in Israel. It is a problem. It is corrupting the nation on some level. It's a matter that needs to be dealt with. So we've seen it in Exodus chapter 32 with the golden calf and the whole debacle that takes place there. They were reflecting the nation and the culture from which they had come. We found it also, remember chapter 17 and verse 7, we saw it there as well, this sort of strange reference, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. That is, there is an infidelity being displayed to God on the fringes of the camp as individuals are offering sacrifices not to God, 
but to goat demons or goat idols. And again, we've seen in the context of that day that this was part of the worship of the nations. Another influence was the Egyptian practice of intermarriage within close family relations. The pharaohs of Egypt commonly married siblings or half-siblings in order to keep dynastic rights alive. And this was then the norm in Egypt with many people. In Canaan, the Israelites were going to a very decadent land. A land that was about to vomit out its people because of this decadence, of this promiscuity and wickedness that was marking the nations that were there. So we're looking at different cultures than our own. But marriage in that day, not based as commonly on romantic feelings, but the flesh is the flesh and large family palaces in Egypt and Egyptian communities, as well as Canaanite communities, temptation in this way was rampant. So just picturing it on this map, they're coming, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt. They've made their way down to Mount Sinai where the law is being given and where these words of instruction are being passed on. It is in anticipation of the journey that will take them north to the promised land. They're leaving Egypt and they're leaving a particular culture there. There's a way of living there. You're not to follow their statutes. You're not to follow the way they say you're supposed to live. But they were also then going to this land of Canaan. And there in this land was a different environment, and yet one also that was very sexually impure. So in these distinct cultures, marked both by sexual sin and sexual expression, there was a call to holiness. So you are not to live as they do. Let's look at verse 4 then. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So God's rules and statutes, the sexual boundaries that he sovereignly established, were rejected by the Egyptians and by the Canaanites. Israel is called to obey those same laws. If a person does them, he shall live by them. There's much debate as to the meaning of that phrase, but it's not, I don't think, that God is encouraging the Israelites to earn their salvation by obedience to God's law. That this was some sort of special era where you could earn God's favor by obeying His rules and His statutes. I don't think that's the point. But rather, Israel's redemption, let's remember, has already been purchased by God. She has been chosen as His people. She has been delivered from Egypt. I think there's, there's knowledge there for us as we interpret even this phrase. She's now to live each day in obedience to God's law. And when God's people obey His will, they enjoy and participate in the life God intends for them to live. They are, in a sense, fully alive. Now this concept can be deepened, it can be developed. Here I think it is simply talking about this word is your life. This word is your life. I give you this word that you might live 
that you might do what is right, not in an arbitrary way, but it is your very life to heed the words of the living God. When God's people obey His will, they enjoy and participate in the life that God intends for them to live. They're fully alive. And so this is not a call to salvation by law-keeping, but a call to enjoy the life God gives His people through the light of His written Word. We enjoy that light, and we're enjoying that light right here today. And whether there's anything said that is novel to us, news to us today, we rejoice to again stake ourselves here and to say this is the light of God's Word and of His truth to us, and it is utterly vital. So that life-giving word includes sexually specific parameters. Now again, we consider the context of these words and the practice of the Canaanites. And as we look into these verses that follow, here in verse 6 and following, we'll probably not find a tremendous amount of temptation here. I hope that you don't. And if you do, counsel after would be a wise thing to seek, as it always is as we come to an understanding of God's Word. But we're not going to look through this and go, that's terribly convicting to me. Because many of these ideas have been long established and our culture is not like the cultures that surrounded Israel. So we need to recognize that. But we've got to go back a little bit and put ourselves in the spot And this is where families and large clans of families lived in close proximity. And I mean close. Beyond what we could really hardly tolerate. They lived in close proximity. They did not travel far, most people. They lived crossing paths with the same group, the small group of people every day of their lives. In that close proximity, families could become cauldrons of lust and sexual advance. God's good word, what it is doing, and I I call you to hear this and read this through all that we consider today. What God's word creates for these people, for his people, is an environment for families free of sexual experimentation and exploitation and debauchery that so characterized the clans of families inhabiting Canaan at the time. If we take what he says, we might say, why would anybody be tempted there? So we're going to have to bridge that gap. This was live temptation for them. But know, as we consider these laws, these rules of God, that they are there to create a family environment that is free of such aggression. And such passion. People can relate to one another as family members. And God is setting this out for them at this early stage. So let's look at the laws restricting incest. Beginning at verse 6. So the call to be holy. Verses 1 through 5. You're to be distinct from the world around you. And now some specific guidelines. Verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. There's the banner idea. A close relative, the Hebrew is flesh of the flesh of him. Someone related by blood. In modern genetics, it is consanguineous to the first and second degree, for those that have studied that. But uh, it's, it's looking at what we would call flesh and blood relationships. 
You will not uncover the nakedness of someone who is a close flesh and blood relationship to the first and second degree. Uncover the nakedness is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. But taken literally, it would include uncovering one's nakedness for any sort of sexual act. It renders unholy and impure the ridiculous defense we hear argued even from the highest office in the land at times that oral sex is not sex. That exposure of another individual is not sexual unless it is intercourse. It covers it all. Don't uncover the nakedness. And as we will see, marriage renders one a blood relative, even if the genetic line is different, and this is laid out as well. So with that banner statement, verse 6, we look through some of the specifics fairly rapidly. Verse 7, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. It is his flesh and blood. It is his wife, and apparently not your mother then, of course, but a, a second wife or through a divorce situation or the like. You will not have sex with her, is the point. Verse 9. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. It made no difference if the fathers were different, if the mothers were different, if the woman was raised in another clan. If she is your mother's daughter, she is off limits. She is your sister. Verse 10, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. For the nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she is your sister. And you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. Relative here, the Hebrew word is your father's flesh. It's an idiom again. His flesh and blood is the way that we put it. You do not enter into such relationships. They're off limits to you. This is how the Egyptians live. This is how the Canaanites live. But you're not going to live that way. You're going to live differently. Verse 13. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. She is a flesh and blood You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Verse 16 might call into question our knowledge of Deuteronomy 25 and the Leveret Law where a man is called upon to marry the widow of his brother who has died childless, or, or who she is still childless, and the, the, the brother did not leave an heir. That's a different issue. There's a few things we don't understand about it, but uh, it's also, I think, at least probable that the unmarried brother in those situations was, was unmarried. 
uh, that he was free then to marry this woman. It's, it's debatable as to how this worked out, but it's a different situation than we find here. The simple point is you shall not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. Verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. They're flesh and blood. It is a depravity to do this. It is an abuse of these women, as is verse 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Again, we've got to get out of our context. You say, what woman on earth would agree to such a marriage? They didn't agree to the marriage many times. It was forced upon them, and it is an abusive situation that the law prohibits. Verses 17 and 18, I suppose, could leave a crack open for polygamy as a concession to the cultural context. It's no approval, however, of multiple wives. The focus here is on curbing harsh, emotionally damaging treatment of women through marriage, abusing them through the laws of marriage. You are not going to go there. The Canaanites are. They're living this way. You saw it in Egypt, but you worship me. And God, in His mercy to His people at this particular stage of history, creates family, larger family, and even communal environments that are free from sexual aggression. They're free from passions dictating relationships that are harmful to everyone. God is merciful here. Genetically, there may be some cause to it that the Lord knows as well. This is not given to us, but simply that He is the Lord and you are my people. And I will create this culture. Now, as we come to verses 19 through 23, we enter then into a new section. The call to holiness begins, and then with some of these specific rules. And again, I don't know that we need to linger too terribly long in verses 6 through 18, saying these are major issues in our culture and our time. There are individuals who step outside the lines of these things, and all of us understand the temptations and the problems in our world of uncovering nakedness, of sexual promiscuity. But perhaps uh, for all of us, these are not issues that are matters of extreme temptation or matters that are being practiced and need to be addressed with discipline. They are a warning to all of us, bringing us back to the standard of God's Word that sexual relationships are to be extremely limited and that that is where they are given by God for good and what is, for what is right. But all of that aside, as we move then to verse 19, the focus shifts more broadly from incest to other sexually deviant acts. We'll just kind of group them together as, as uh, the author sort of bullet points through, beginning at verse 19. It's really a fascinating passage here to the end of the chapter as we consider the context and we consider our context and we'll do that as we work through verse 19 you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness 
Now, it's possible this prohibition parallels simply the ritual uncleanness of bodily fluids discussed in chapter 15. In other words, there's nothing innately evil about it, but simply a matter of uncleanness, such as described in 15.24. However, in Leviticus 20 and verse 18, the penalty is being cut off from one's people. And that seems uh, strange. It's a form of excommunication, subjecting one to the providential discipline of God at least. It seems oddly severe for this act. Some commentators then suggesting that there may have been some form of idolatry behind it, some ritual practice that we cannot now identify. But at any rate, it again causes the Israelites to consider and to be thoughtful and to apply. Verse 20 And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. And suddenly the room sort of opens up in color for us, for this is at the heart of our temptation as a society. To have sexual relations with a neighbor's wife. What is a neighbor in that context? Anyone who is part of your regular daily commerce is a neighbor. There are many reasons that sexual activity took place in such environments. Reasons there from that time and that are true today. But this is the wife of the man whose field you help harvest or whose fish you buy at the marketplace. The neighbor is the wife of the men, the wives of the men that you sit with at synagogue. The wife living down the way whose husband was a shepherd and we'd be out in the fields for weeks at a time. Or the wife of the merchant who would travel down to Egypt or some other place in the world and take a large amount of money and be gone for a lengthy period. His wife. You're not to enter into sexual relationships with her. The wife of the man whose house but it up to yours is obviously included too, who walks by your house every day, twice a day, to fetch water. And you talk, and you see her, and you interact, and you know one another's lives. You can hear one another snoring at night through the walls of your homes built so closely together. We're talking many times 12 by 12 houses, 12 feet by 12 feet houses with shared walls. And not very, nothing approximating insulation. They lived very close lives. You're not to uncover her nakedness. In the bustling and intimate domestic life of the ancient Israelites, living in these close quarters, walking everywhere that they went, knowing very little anonymity as we do, any number of relationships could grow sensual roots. And what God's law says is you do not water those roots. You don't keep them alive. The excuses abound, of course, in our own day for disobedience to God's law right here. I'm in a miserable marriage and I have needs. I can't help it. I'm just attracted to her. Nothing I've tried. I can't control it. It's just there. It's just who I am. 
He speaks such kind and affirming words to me. He appreciates my talents. Talents my husband does not seem to notice anymore. When I'm with him, I just feel good. She needs my comfort. She needs my protection. And hey, one thing just led to another. We didn't plan it. It just happened. It wasn't even really ultimately sexual. It was just closeness. The excuses go on and on and on. In the clarity of this moment, as we're gathered here together, we need to just say, these are justifications for the flesh. That's all they are. And if such justifications rattle around in your mind, they need to be killed. They need to be weeded out, not watered. Physical attraction or romantic feelings can creep up on any one of us. But in that moment, we need to recognize my passions are not my master. I belong to the Lord. And God's glory must stand tall over any sensual pressure that I face. It's His glory, it's His reputation, it's His law, it's His life. And so I bring such interests, such movements of the heart under His Lordship in my consideration. So if you find yourself attracted to someone other than your mate, learn to interpret this from God's perspective. Number one, know this. We get it here and we dig a stake down in it. It is dangerous. This attraction that I have to someone other than my mate, it's dangerous. Now I realize as we talk to singles in this culture, that's a little bit of a different conversation on some level. But even there, we must be watchful. It may be a legitimate relationship with another single individual. Attraction is not evil in itself, but it must be managed and it must be controlled. That aside, we're talking about a single individual developing feelings for a married person or a married individual with sensual interest, attraction to another married individual. When we get into that realm, just that attraction is there, no, it's danger zone. Secondly, it's sin. Now, attraction may not be sin, in and of itself, sometimes that is not something that can be necessarily controlled, and certainly recognizing beauty is not sin. But where there is that attraction, it can cross into enjoyment. It can be entertained, and what we need to do is learn to confess that as sin immediately. Don't even wait till you get home. Just say, right then and there in your mind, Lord, This is wrong. It is lust. I confess it as such. I repent. Help my mind. Help my heart to track in the right way. In your mind, pray at the gate. It's dangerous. It's sin. I confess. Thirdly, it is energy of sorts that I must control. 
work to suffocate it, refuse to daydream, refuse to fantasize, refuse to enjoy it. Don't meddle in it. Work your brain around it. Concentrate elsewhere. And it is, number four, a relationship to avoid. That person where you find attraction, that's a relationship to avoid. Steer clear of that person. You aren't the one to help her. If there's an attraction there that is inappropriate, that if given root would lead to sinful relationship, you're not the one to help him. You're not the one to encourage him. You're not the one to help her. Someone else can do that. And I don't think you need to be weird about it. And if providence puts the two of you in close proximity and you're having a conversation with one another, have that normal conversation. Recognize this is a brother in Christ. Recognize this is a sister in Christ. Recognize this is a neighbor in the community or a workmate. You don't need to be weird around the, that person. In fact, I don't think there's usually advantage in that. Speak normally to them but steer wide of close interaction. Don't get alone, ever. Don't get alone. By God's grace, the interest will shrivel up and die as you consistently refuse to water it. It will. The control that the Spirit of God gives is put into daily action and even that which pulls us away and wants to draw us down into impurity and wickedness and to profane the name of Christ, little by little, being starved to death and not watered, the root gets severed. Press it to the end. By God's grace, the interest will shrivel up and die. All of this just by way of practical encouragement. And if you boil it all down and see it, it is Christ is Lord and I fight at the gate. Christ is Lord, not my passions, not my interests, not my needs, not what I think I need from whom I think I need it. He is Lord and I fight it at the gate. One minute in, in my mind... I confess as sin and I keep fighting it at the gate. Don't let sexual attraction come on into the house and find an easy chair in the living room of your soul. You're in big trouble if you're there. And if you're entertaining such thoughts, if you're fantasizing about a relationship, you've got to understand the danger of it, the sin of it, the energy of it, and the relationship that must be starved to death. Simply said here in Leviticus 18, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. Verse 21 seems a little bit out of sorts here, but it says, in context, making sense, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Seems a bit out of context. The sexual theme may be retained in the fact that this is just a child. But in any event, 
Sufficient archaeological evidence proves that child sacrifice was widely practiced in the land of Canaan and certainly around it with some specific evidences and even some remains that have been found. Uh, you, You can't prove that a whole bunch of little babies died in a fire. You can't prove that from this distance. But it seems quite unlikely. There's urns with babies' bones and and, um, ashes that have been discovered. It is fairly clear that this was widely practiced around Canaan and in Canaan at the time. Typically, they would slit the throat of an infant. And they'd take that dead child and burn its body to ashes. This shocking practice was rooted in theology. When you see the gods a certain way, you need to give them the best gift you can come up with to make them happy. You might want something bad enough that you'll sacrifice a baby, your own. Now, in a lot of places, the babies were purchased from poor people. And what a temptation that is. We're having a hard time feeding the family. We've got more mouths to feed than we can feed. This child of six months old isn't too far away from needing food. And this individual's offering us this kind of money? They took the money. And some child died. It seems so crazy. And yet, what I just described wasn't happening in ancient Israel. It was happening in Uganda at their recent elections. Wealthy individuals purchasing babies, burning them to death so that the gods would help them win an election in the 21st century. And is this really far off from where we are as a nation? And the countless numbers of infants that are killed in the womb. Many children sacrificed on a different kind of altar, but sacrificed for convenience. Because it's simpler. Because this life doesn't deserve to cause me the trouble that I'll face. And of course, the cultural defenders will stand up and be quick to respond that many women are facing some of the most difficult pressures and we need to be compassionate and understanding. And I would say, yes, we do. We need to recognize a woman in this culture that takes the life of an unborn child is facing some really bad problems. She is suffering in ways she doesn't even know she's suffering. And we need to be filled with compassion for such women. There's no desire to control women. For us, it's a matter of honoring God as the author of life and protecting the innocent. In fact, we would have open arms for those who have come to know that God is the author of life, that Christ has provided forgiveness of sin, that there is restoration in Him, that there is compassion for those who have been led astray. There is no sin too great for God to forgive. And there is no sinner that the church does not embrace who has come to repentance in Christ. 
But all of that understood and with compassion for those who so struggle and particularly with compassion for those who have come to repentance in Jesus, we still know that abortion is an egregious profaning of God's name. Our culture is terminally ill on this score. You cannot murder innocence. You cannot encourage people to do this. You cannot celebrate it and not incur the wrath of God. We are not God's chosen nation. We're not unique in that sense, although we do certainly have a unique history. But God is God. His laws are His laws. And just as you jump off a cliff and are going to face gravity, you kill innocent life. And you're going to face God. And it just keeps going. Verse 22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. An abomination is something that God detests. And again, our sexually depraved culture points a wagging finger accusing Bible believers of hating and seeking to oppress those who practice homosexuality. Well, let's get this straight. First, what we condemn is not homosexual interest necessarily, not the attraction necessarily, any differently than we would have spoken a few moments earlier about heterosexual attraction. Sometimes that interest is there. It's not the temptation itself that is the evil, to be clear. Secondly, speaking against homosexuality as sin does not mean that we hate those who practice it. We speak against their sexual deviance the same way we speak against heterosexual passion. Now, God's Word does speak of homosexuality as a particularly egregious rejection of God's design. But having said that, when we condemn homosexual practice, we are consistent with our call to moral purity among heterosexuals as well. It's just there's a consistency there. We love sinners, whoever they are, admitting that we too are tempted to use sex for selfish reasons. But at the end of the day, we love sinners enough to call sin, sin. We warn them against what God knows to be destructive and dangerous behavior that may bring passing pleasure, but ends in misery and destruction. And again, do we not have a measure of maturity when the world rages against us and says, how can you tell me what brings me pleasure? With maturity, we stand back and in a sense smile with compassion, knowing that passion itself is no master. Not to those for whom Christ has broken the bonds of sin. And we know that there is transformation in Christ. And we know that what we want in the flesh is often our destruction. So I hope with maturity, with patience, we can continue to hold out the light. Loving sinners enough to call sin, sin. Which the Bible does. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And if you stop right there, you've got to say, I don't want to be among the unrighteous. 
I want to inherit the kingdom of God. If you know anything about what the kingdom of God is, you say, I want that. And God in His mercy then says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The beauty is, in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there is sin that is there. It becomes habitual. It becomes a way of life such that you can be characterized by it. But you can be transformed by Christ. You can be delivered from that way of life and have a new character. And be a new person in Christ. Verse 23, we hit the bottom of the barrel. And you shall not lie with any animal so to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. You say, who on earth would do such a despicable thing? Well, the Canaanites would, for one whether under the guise of a pagan ritual or whether the result of total boredom with other illicit pursuits, such deviance was practiced by the Canaanites. Back in Egypt, archaeologists have unearthed a cult involving sexual relations between women and goats. If a culture looks too long at sex as a purely biological function to serve personal pleasure, anything becomes possible. Absolutely anything. God calls it a perversion. That is, it perverts His design. It profanes His glory. So here's the final warning. Do not, verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. God is here reporting the outcome of the Canaanite sexual sin, and it takes us back to Genesis 15. Remember God's words to Abraham. The Lord says to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, Egypt, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The roots of the wicked plant of sexual perversion is, is in place at this time, as Abraham speaks with God, God's speaking with him. But for four centuries, those roots are going to grow and the wicked fruit is going to pre- be produced throughout the land until that culture gets to a place where the land vomits them out. How long that takes, we do not know with every culture. But for this culture, God put a put an expiration date on the Canaanites. He reigns sovereignly, notice, over the nations. 
And so his law is binding upon all of them. It was as if the Canaanites were playing a game without knowing the rules. God gives this word to his people. He doesn't give this word to the Canaanites. And many Bible interpreters simply can't live with that. They cringe so much at the thought. They argue that they could only be accountable for the laws that God specifically gave them. But how do you deal with this passage? The truth is that God impresses enough of His law upon the conscience of all people to prove that they will, given the opportunity, reject that law apart from His enlightening work. The Canaanites never knew God's moral law, but they also cared nothing about discerning it. And would that news be brought to them? Yes, in the form of Israelites faithful to God, and what did the Canaanites do with it? Absolutely nothing. They had come to a place of absolute devotion and love to their gods of sensuality. The God of Israel was no competition for them. They were too busy pursuing their wicked ways to stop and ask what God thought. So violating God's law, they became corrupt, they became unclean. It was as if the land itself spewed them out of its mouth in utter disgust. By contrast, Israel, notice the contrast here, Israel is to live differently. Verse 26, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. Neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So even the strangers and sojourners among them were not to be permitted to violate God's law in these matters. They were to control their culture to the degree that this type of behavior could not become part and parcel of that world. If Israel thought she could get away with the sins God judged the Canaanites for committing, she should think again. God says the land is vomiting the Canaanites out because of their sexual impurities That is to say, I am judging them for their disgusting sin. They are burning children in the fire. They're in relationships with animals. In their families and clans, they live like animals. Taking up with one another and ruining family life. The land vomited them out. If you live like they do, it will vomit you out. We don't get a special pass because we're God's people. We do have forgiveness, but it's not a pass to license. Verse 29, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. Why? I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. We end where we began with that truth. So as God's people, 
we must permanently adjust our perspective to know that we will see sexuality in a radically different way than unbelievers see it. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your unbelieving family members and friends, we will stand apart. We're going to be different. We must recognize that God calibrates His law concerning sexual expression in order to distinguish us from the world in which we live. It's a rescue from the wickedness that sin brings. But using that opportunity, God sets this up such that it will evidence our distinctiveness. This is who you're going to be. You will be different. To limit sexual expression to one man and one woman covenanted to lifelong fidelity in the bond of marriage is astonishingly stupid to our world. If not criminally hateful. And should we continue on the path we're on, jail time's coming. It has to. Unless something changes. Hate speech spoken all over the place here today. And if this culture remains consistently on the path it's on, it's going to mean jail time to read the Bible out loud. Our world has no sense of the self-control and the superior joy in God provided by our redemption. It just can't understand it. For us, the power of sin has been broken. And we are able, by God's grace, to make progress in sanctification. However slow and beset with challenge the road may be, are you a follower of Christ? Do you know Him as your Savior? You can grow. You can make progress. You can root out sin little by little, not water it, and sever its roots. He's given you that power. You may not be convinced of it right now, He has if you're in Christ. And little by little we can put sin to death. And I may speak to some who are caught in a web of sensual sin. There is a relationship that's very well alive inside of you right now. A relationship with a way of pleasure, a relationship with a person, whatever it is, a relationship with a screen. And you're caught in a web the worst thing you can do is walk out of here today and just say, I wish it would be different. Don't walk out alone. What sin longs to do is to get you isolated and have you to itself. The answer is to do this relating to God and to do this relating to God to brothers and sisters in Christ, as appropriate. We can indeed build each other up in the faith. We can indeed hold one another accountable. We can fight sin together, and we must. Concentrate on repentance, on union with Christ, on the victory that is available in Him, and what is available with the body of Christ. You remember this verse at the end, such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see what's not there? 
This is what you were, but now here's your pattern of obedience. All he sets on right here is this is who you were. You're not that anymore because of what Jesus did. Not because of your habits and your patterns yet at this point, but because of what Christ did, you are new. And it's going to take the rest of your life for you to come to terms with the fact that I've been made new in Christ. But in that is the answer. And it's not ultimately in any person and it's not in you and your capacities to control yourself. It's in Christ. So what our nation sees as evolutionary is actually devolutionary. It is a cancer that is killing us. Let's not be part of the darkness. God calls us to be holy, for He is holy. Jesus' call is you are the salt and the light of the earth, fighting the moral decay. You are the light of the world, illumining the truth in a world that is lying to itself and contributing to its own destruction. May we join forces as Christ's people, and be faithful to Him in this area.